Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is filmmaker Dan Habib. Dan is the director and producer of the nationally broadcast documentary films Intelligent Lives, Who Cares About Kelsey, Mr. Conley Has ALS, and Including Samuel, as well as many other short disability-related films. His films have been featured in dozens of film festivals, translated into 17 languages, and used worldwide to support inclusive education and disability rights. Dan's most recent film, My Disability Roadmap, was featured on the New York Times website in May and follows his son Samuel, a college student with cerebral palsy and epilepsy, as he seeks guidance from disability activists on everything from leaving home to dating. From 2014 to 2017, Dan served on the President's Committee for People with Intellectual Disabilities under President Barack Obama. Dan has also screened and discussed his films hundreds of times in the United States and internationally at universities, corporations, national conferences for educators, families, policymakers, and the general public. He is the Inclusive Communities Project Director at the Westchester Institute for Human Development and the founder of Like Right Now Films. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum, from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please follow, leave a review, and share. And now on to my conversation with Dan Habib. Hello, Dan Habib. Welcome to Making Media Now. Hi, nice to see you, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be chatting with you. So I want to I want to begin with this kind of a broad question, but I'm curious how what would you say distinguishes you as a filmmaker? Well, I, I, there probably aren't a lot of filmmakers that have focused kind of in one topic area for their whole career. And so I've been doing films now 16, 17 years, and they've all been disability related. So it, it all grows out of my experience as Samuel's father, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And so I think that's probably one big piece. The other piece I might say is I, I was a photojournalist for 20 years before becoming a filmmaker. So I had this background of kind of just trying to immerse myself in people's lives in really personal, intimate ways. And I think that's not an unusual thing for a documentary filmmaker, but it's something I've always taken a lot of pride in is, is trying to get into people's lives in a way that is very respectful, but that is very telling and uh, hopefully insightful to the viewer. So uh, share with our listeners, if if you would, a bit of your son Samuel's story. Uh, and he was born in 1999 when he was just a, a baby. Uh, you and your wife uh, came to discover uh, that that he uh, was disabled. Tell us a little bit about how that revelation played itself out, and in the aftermath when you decided to sort of make that shift in storytelling. Yeah. I mean, as many of your listeners might appreciate, if they have people with disabilities in their lives, uh, a lot changes in your life when you have 
a person coming to your family with a disability or acquire a disability, you know, in, in the case of some people. And um, when we realized a few months into Samuel's life that he was going to have a lifelong disability, you know, we were reassessing everything, our, our work lives, where we were, the, the house we were in, it was a two-story house that soon, soon became apparent was not going to work for us long-term, you know, the impact on our older son, Isaiah, the emotional strain it was putting on us as a couple, um, the financial strain it was putting on us, uh, us on a couple. So, so my career was just one piece of many, many moving parts that we were dealing with. And, you know, for the first couple of years, honestly, it was just trying to figure out how to sustain our mental health, our physical health. Um, it's just, it was a lot of stress, you know, on the family to realize this path that we had envisioned for our family was going in a very different direction. Now, thankfully, we found out about a leadership program at that point that my wife took first and then I took. And it really clarified our vision for Samuel, which was that he would have a sense of belonging in our society and mm -hmm. in, in every aspect. And when I finished that leadership program, I really wanted to do something act, you know, as an advocate, as an activist, something to support disability rights. And, and, and we were coming to understand how important inclusion was and inclusive education. But I was a photojournalist and my whole back background was in telling other people's stories. It wasn't ever about telling my own story, but Samuel actually got really sick at about three years old. He got pneumonia. He was in critical condition for a couple of weeks. And once he stabilized his wonderful doctor, who's still one of his doctors turned to me and said, have you ever thought of telling your own family story with your background journalism skills? And, and I hadn't, but I just started taking pictures in the hospital, honestly, just to burn off stress that I was mm -hmm. feeling just to have something to do other than freak out. And, um, and that was the very start of what became my film, including Sam on my first film. And I, I decided to do film over photography because I had a photo exhibit running at that same time. And I was presenting to a local high school and they said, you know, we like seeing the pictures, but we can't really connect with people without seeing them in motion, without seeing video. Yeah. And this is back in 2003. Yeah. So, you know, not that long ago, but long enough that video was not as much of our daily currency as it is now. So that... All those things coming together around the same time led me to start making that first film. And that changed the whole trajectory of my career. And what was the nature of the disability that Samuel was diagnosed with as a baby? Well, what's interesting is that we didn't get an accurate diagnosis until just about three years ago. And he's, oh, wow. he's 22 now. And so it wasn't until he's 19 that we actually got an accurate diagnosis. We just had this, this global kind of diagnosis of cerebral palsy. But all that means is your brain isn't communicating with your muscles accurately. And it can be caused by a lot of different things. You know, a lot of people think it's a birth injury. There was no birth injury in Samuel's case. They thought it was a mitochondrial disorder, which is a problem with that power plant, you know, in the cell, the mitochondria. It, we thought for many years that's what it was, but it wasn't until we had some genetic testing with a whole new human genome project, you know, uh, data that we were able to get a definitive diagnosis of something called GNAO1 neurodevelopmental disorder, which only has been diagnosed in a few hundred people around the world. And Sam was one of the oldest known people that have it. So that's a whole other story of like coming to terms with his disability. It didn't, it wasn't like we were there searching for his, his, his diagnosis. We just wanted him to have the full, happy, you know, uh, well-educated social life that, that he wanted to have. That was the most important thing and keeping him healthy, you know, so we didn't belabor that too much. And did, yeah, and, and did that considerable amount of time that it took to arrive at that diagnosis, is that the byproduct of sort of, you know, uh, evolving science and medicine or, or around the disability, or is it a byproduct of an evolution of the disability itself? 
Um, it's mostly it's mostly around genetic testing, to be honest with you. It's mostly about the availability now of genetic testing and the fact that there's diagnostics now that just didn't exist when he was younger. Um, and I think there's a lot of people out there that have disabilities that they see that they think is one thing, but it's actually something else. So I mean, we could have a whole, I'm sure, conversation just about disability and genetics and, uh, and medical. I know that may not be what your listeners want to hear, but that there's a lot to talk about there. When you made the move from um, telling stories as a photojournalist to telling stories with moving images as, as a filmmaker, how... What did you look to, if you look to any, any, anything or any, any other filmmaker as sort of guides in the sense of how do I tell such a personal story, but still make it reflective of, um, you know, greater concerns? Yeah. Well, first, let me say, I did not know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> I just didn't. I really did it. I can't. I mean, I, I look back now. I'm like, who the hell was I to think that I could just go make a movie? Right. I mean, with no training, with no I never went to film school. I'd never handle a video camera than a little family camcorder. But I but I just you know, I'm a pretty determined person. I just wanted to do this. So the, so one of the first things I did was look for some mentorship. And I, I was actually the subject of a film um, that the filmmaker Ted Bogosian did, who's a New England filmmaker, a great documentary filmmaker about the New Hampshire primary. And sure. he picked three or four subjects. And I, he picked me as a subject, as a photojournalist, seeing the primary through my eyes. So Ted was, is a great guy. And he, and I started asking him for advice on, and he gave me tons of great advice on making a movie. Um, some of my friends, you know, who were photojournalists saw the story was really about Samuel and his experience, even though at first I was going to do like this general film about inclusion and disability rights. My friends were like, no, you know, the story, you know, is Samuel and you've got to focus on that. And then I, I of course, you got to find an editor. And I called Ken Burns' studio. Everyone knows Ken Burns, right? New, New Hampshire guy. I called the studio. I didn't speak with Ken himself, but I said, hey, do you guys know any editors in New England who are really good, who are freelance? And they pointed me to this wonderful editor, Rick Degrees in Western Massachusetts, who had edited some of baseball, the documentary baseball. And Rick was really great. Yeah, he was. Rick was really helpful. I'm glad I engaged him early because he said, you don't think this is true, but their story is going to be told through the audio. And I'm like, no, I'm a photojournalist. It's all the picture. It's the visual. He said, no, the audio is going to tell the story. And you know, I think a lot of filmmakers can appreciate that. It's that underlying narrative, whether it's the verite audio often or the voiceover or the narration, like that's what builds the story. And the video kind of adds the punch. Now, not every film is the same, of course, but I mean, honestly, I, I, I just was scrambling for information and going on instinct. And what I had going for me was the experience of like framing, you know, the visual framing. Sure. And I'm, I quickly learned some like basic technology, got a decent camera, but, but the, the, the challenging thing was to think about audio all the time as you're filming. And as a photojournalist, that was not my experience. And I've, I've been a one man band on a lot of my films doing all the audio and the video. And it's just, I don't like to do that anymore, but that's what I did for a long time. Talk to me a little bit about what the challenge was to sort of disappear um, from behind the camera, you know, because yeah. I think ideally the um, the person holding the camera becomes irrelevant to what's happening in the frame. Right. Right. Uh, right. And I would imagine that's a little bit more difficult with subjects that, you know, so well and share your life with. Yeah, it's much more difficult. And in some ways, I, I'm, I'm kind of in a bookend situation now, which is you know, my first film was including Samuel when Samuel was young. And that was 
you know, f- film from the perspective of his father. So that's obviously not an objective perspective. And I, you know, and I'm, I'm narrating a lot of that film. It's very much a, almost a journal about my own experience being Samuel's dad and coming to terms with disability and his experience and thinking about how we can advocate for him. Cause he was only four or five, six years old in that film. And now, as I'm sure we'll talk about, I'm working on a new film co-directing with him where he's an adult. So those, both of those films, I couldn't completely remove myself. It just would be unrealistic and and not authentic, right? To to remove myself completely. But I, as much as I could, I tried to make the story through Samuel's perspective in both cases and through the perspective of Betsy, my wife, and in the in including Samuel and his brother Isaiah is a very important part of that film. Other people that are part of the film. In between that time, I've made a lot of films that are much more verite and that are much more. I, I really am removed. But the, one of the hardest things, Michael, was was I, including Sam, I made a somewhat ridiculous decision to keep shooting stills and video for that film. So the film has video and it has still photograph kind of um, montages. And I would literally have a still camera on one shoulder and a video camera on the other and trying to decide which to use for different situations. I would never do that again. I would never recommend anyone do that. But in the moment, like I think I couldn't let go of the still photography in the still photographer in me. Um, so that was challenging and, and certainly it was challenging to just like, when am I just going to be Samuel dad? And when am I going to be Dan, the documentary filmmaker? It was a constant balancing act and it was, it was difficult. And I'll be honest at times it was stressful on the family. Like my wife was like, you're on planet Dan, you know, you're getting up at four in the morning to work on this film. And then I'd go into work to be a director of photography at a newspaper and come back and I work on the film and it's all good. Now we've been together 30 years as of yesterday, but like it was a tough, there were some tough times of of navigating that within the family. So that was, that was within the context of your first film that, as you said, was uh, including Samuel and you followed that up with Mr. Connolly has ALS. Who cares about Kelsey? Intelligent lives. And your most recent, your most recent film that you, that you mentioned your, your, uh, co-directing with with your son Samuel is my disability roadmap. An yeah. excerpt of which was featured front page uh, of the New York Times in May of this year in their uh, op docs section. Um, tell me about my disability roadmap um, and how the excerpt that was and remains accessible through the New York Times uh, website. Um, is uh, representative of what the fuller film will eventually be. Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks. I mean, and, and it's interesting. It's that I never intended originally to make a short version of my disability roadmap. And Samuel and I, Samuel and I are co-directing this and we're involved together in every stage of the project. I'm producing it, you know, which is, as you know, like the fundraising and a lot of the logistics on film shoots and things. But what happened was with every film I've made, feature length film, I have found that it's critical to create an early sizzle reel that's a strong, like eight, 10, 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. And we use that for fundraising. We use that, you know, to start talking about distribution and outreach, but I have found that to be so incredibly valuable, especially for fundraising. And so we, so I work with this wonderful editor, James Rutenbeck in Boston, who's also a well-known filmmaker in his own right. I, I, I know Jam. I'm not going to say I know him well, but I know James. I, he and I worked at WGBH for years, had him on the podcast to talk about a reckoning in Boston. He's nice. He's as sweet a soul as he is talented a filmmaker. Agreed. hundred percent. He's a good friend of mine. Now we've been, he, he edited intelligent lives, my last film and, and some other short films. So we're, we're tight and we work a lot together. And so James and I made this 
what what started out to be a sizzle reel became like a sizzle reel on steroids. It ended up being 15 minutes long. And we were, we were really excited about it. And we started showing it to some filmmaker friends. And some of the, these filmmaker friends were like, you know, this is basically like a short film. This is, this holds up very well as a short film. And, um, and I thought, well, maybe I'll send it into the New York times opdocs. And cause I've always loved that series and I love the New York times and thought maybe they'll be interested. They were interested. And so they immediately Can I said, just interrupt you yeah. for one second? I, sure. I love your brazen approach. You know, I need an editor. I think I'll call Ken Burns. <laughs> I'd like yeah. this. I'd like this sizzle reel to get out to the world. Let me see. I'll call the New York Times. Well, you know what? You know, Michael, I'll tell you, I think Samuel has emboldened me because when you I mean, just to be honest and and like to change the tone just a little bit, when you when you almost see your child die, you're yes. not afraid of anything. Absolutely. And and like right. once once and, and what what we've navigated with Samuel, and I'm I'm not trying to be blunt, I'm just trying to be honest here. Like once what we've navigated with Samuel takes away a lot of fear in life. Sure. Of, of like the little things. So like sure. Yeah, and, and, and I think it would probably um it reinforces the fact that you know so much of the artificiality of life is just unnecessary. It's yes. a waste of time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You want to make a request? Make a request. Guess what? Maybe they'll say no. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, and I believe in my work, but more so I believe in surrounding myself with talented people like James and Rick and all these great people I've gotten a chance to work with. When you work with people like that, the work just gets so much better. The the product gets so much better. And so I I felt like we have something pretty special here. Um and so so when the Times was interested, they they were fantastic to work with. They they started working with us in October of 2021. And they would send us notes and ideas, but they were never like exerting editorial control. They were just saying, here's some input. So we worked to develop that into the 23 minute, 22 minute plus credits film that was an opdoc, but that is its own short film. And we never kind of framed it as an excerpt in the times. It's really its own short film and it's been in festivals with hot docs. It's, you know, it's a kind of in its own realm now. And it's somewhat unconventional, I think, to, to, to do a short that you know is going to become a feature. But this in this media landscape, there's nothing's really conventional anymore. You know, there's lots of different possibilities. So, so basically that film started because Samuel and I love working together. He's gotten really interested in film and documentary work. He's he's transitioning from his high school years into adulthood. So there's a, just a story of his transition is a very powerful, emotional, personal story yep. of what it means for him to go to college, try to, you know, expand his social circle, try to date. He's interested in sex. Like most 22 year old people are, you know, he, there's a lot of things in his life that he's trying to figure out where, how he's going to live on his own, how he's going to navigate healthcare. And he was, he's ready to tell his own story and he wanted me to help him tell his story. And he wanted to reach out to people who have been through it, to mentors, to adults with disabilities. So the film, My Disability Roadmap, for those that haven't seen it, is is it's documenting his own story of transition to adulthood, both through my camera and his own perspective with two GoPro cameras mounted to his wheelchair, one facing out, one facing in, interwoven around these really incredible interviews he's doing with these uh, incredible adults with disabilities. So so we're, we're really thrilled to get the 22 minute out into the uh, times. But once we 
get the chance to continue working as we're doing now on the feature length, we'll be able to go much more into the verite scenes of his life. We'll go into much more depth in these incredible conversations he's having rather than having them be 90 seconds, they could be five, six minutes. We have an, this uh, incredible set of autistic animators that are animating some of the archival stories that these people are telling about their past. Oh, wow. All of our musicians are people with disabilities. And actually we committed to hiring the majority of our production and outreach crew are people with disabilities for this whole project. And that's a, a really important value. Um, we have an advisory board of young adults with disabilities that are advising us. It is a really fun and exciting project to work on. So to take you back to the beginning for a moment, um, I read, I think I had read, or perhaps I heard somewhere, you, you, you speak of at one point having an ableist bias. Yeah. Uh, tell us what you mean by that. Well, I, I, I mean, honestly, I think pretty much almost everybody does. I mean, I think our society, it's, it's kind of, I mean, without getting too political, I think it's like saying, I don't have a racist bone in my body. I mean, we all have, we have a, a, a history in this country of racism. How can we say we don't have a racist bone in our body when, when the foundation of this country was built on racism? The foundation of this country was built on ableism. You know, I mean, there's the people with disabilities have been institutionalized, oppressed, brutalized throughout the whole history of this country. And it continues to this day in many, many arenas. So I was born into a culture of ableism, of, of that that saw disability as something broken, as wrong, as as something needed to be cured, fixed. Samuel's never seen himself that way. He's proud of being a disabled person. He's fine being a disabled person. He wants society to become more accessible to him. And and somebody really wise said to me once, a disability is just the gap between a person's abilities and the environment in which they're expected to function. If you can close that gap and make the society more accessible, the disability becomes less and less relevant. So, so that's a, a kind of a long way of answering your question, but I just think that I've had to fight against my own preconceived notions being a non-disabled person, my own preconceived biases. Just like as a white person, I feel like I need to fight against my preconceived biases through the lens of a white person to really understand things like racism or sexism or homophobia, et cetera. Yeah. I sometimes think that along with those other kind of knee jerk reactions that people have, um, another one is fear yeah. for, for, you know, for some reason, it's a fear of the unknown. How do I engage with this person? What if I do right. the wrong thing? So right. it's almost like I'll just put up blinders. Well, and you, you've seen in the film, um, there's a scene that people talk about more than any other scene in My Disability Roadmap where Sam was in an airport and a woman comes up and starts talking to him like he's a three-year-old. Yeah. And we happen to capture it with the GoPro cameras. Thank you, GoPro cameras. And, you know, she's off camera. So we were, and we just use her first name. So there's not like liability, liability issues because it's not a very flattering portrayal, but it's a very honest scene in which which happens to Samuel a lot where people talk down to him like he's a three-year-old, even though he's a 22-year-old college student. And it's just because he's in a wheelchair sure. and has a communication device and doesn't speak in a typical way. People presume he's incompetent. And that's, that is, that's something we're trying to show in the film, like how common that is. And that we were fortunate to actually document it in real time. And it's been a pretty powerful part of the film. So now uh, that you're into your fifth film and you're getting into your second decade as a, as a filmmaker, um, how have you seen sort of the community of um, uh, of people who work for disability rights and also sort of just disability equity in terms of uh, perception? How have you seen that grow and what kind of a contribution do you think that films such as yours, along with other types of media, can play? 
Well, you know, first of all, there's some really exciting things happening specifically around disability and documentary film. Um, you probably know about Crip Camp, a wonderful documentary that came out last year. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim Lebrecht, Sarah Boulder, Nicole Noonan, who made that film, are have been friends of mine for a number of years, along with Judy Human, who's in that film and also in our film. And Jim and Sarah, Jim Lebrecht and Sarah Boulder came on board as executive producers of our film, My Disability Roadmap. But Jim, but Jim particularly is leading some really incredible efforts to make film festivals more accessible, to fight back when things like the Academy Awards and the Emmys weren't, especially actually the Academy Awards did a pretty good job, but the Emmys didn't do a good job of creating accessibility. There's a lot more of an understanding, I think, in both Hollywood and in the documentary world that people with disabilities should be telling their own stories. That mm-hmm. you know that when when non-disabled people tell the disability story without the kind of partnership and engagement that we have with our film, often the stories are about pity. They're about you know tragedy and how horrible it is that someone has a disability and life isn't worth living. And that's been the, those are the tropes that we've seen many, over many years. And so I think that. Or they go to the opposite end of the spectrum and the disabled person is saintly. Exactly. Saintly or like the superhero, or the super <laughs> crip, it's called in, the, in sometimes in the disability world. So I think that I think that the, the impact that films can make, and I hope I'm contributing to that through my body of work, is that if you if you show complex, nuanced, in-depth stories involving people with disabilities and you bring people with disabilities into the leadership of the production, you know, as co-directors, as consultants, as stars, as executive producers, you, you get much more authentic story. And I think that that's the same as you see it around, you know, stories telling the lives of black Americans or black individuals, LGBTQ women. I mean, I think people really need to be telling their own stories. And I think my, my role as a, as a white non-disabled man is to make sure I'm supporting that platform. And I'm, as a producer, I'm creating opportunities, I think, through my my experience with fundraising and my experience with production to, to let people tell their own stories. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm helping Samuel tell his own story through Intelligent Lies. We let, you know, we enable three other young adults and their families to tell their stories. You know, that's, that's what I love doing. I love creating these platforms and these venues. And I do love the creative process of editing and producing. And certainly you have to make a lot of decisions, you know, and they're subjective at times, but I don't, I try not to make those in isolation from the people that are really vested in the story and who understand the the, the nuances of the story. The name of your production company is Like Right Now Films. And Tell our listeners why it's called like right now films. <laughs> well, there, there's the story. There's the public facing reason and the private reason. So the, <laughs> and I'll tell both. The public facing reason is, you know, like right now films ha- felt like it had this sense of urgency. Like we, we don't have time to waste. We need to make films that are right now in the moment impactful. The, the funny family story is that when Samuel was in the driving in the backseat of our car on long road trips, he was, he would always say, I've got to go pee like right now. <laughs> so in our family, whenever someone, when we're on a road trip and you got to go pee, it's like, like right now. And so that's it's about funny. how much notice your average kid gives you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I like that. It's got kind of like the funny personal side and, you know, and that gets to, that gets also to the fact that I really love having a lot of humor in our films. And I, I hope that everyone who watches one of our films will laugh a lot. And I think they will, because I just think that's such an important entry point, especially when you're dealing with pretty serious subjects at times, you, you don't want it to, I tell people watching my films, I don't want it to feel like you're eating a vegetable that you don't like. I want you to enjoy watching the film while you're also being challenged and hopefully learning some things and, and getting motivated. 
Yeah, that definitely comes through the humor, the humanity, the just just the human connection and and the disability becomes a component of the story. Exactly. Exactly. It's a whole it's it's part of a holistic picture. Again, just like many other stories, just like if you do stories that are covering other issues, it's not you don't want them to be one dimensional. Mm -hmm. So so listeners, if as I said earlier, uh, can head over to The New York Times website and just search for uh, my disability roadmap to see the the let's just call it the truncated version of that was featured uh, last month. That would have been May of 22. Uh, And so when will the uh, longer, you know, full film version uh, be out in the world and what's your plan for rolling that out? Right. So, um, and actually I'll, I'll I'll give listeners uh, a tip that they can also go to our website, like right now films and all my films are there in one place, including my disability roadmap. Um, so like, like right now films.com and that, so that there's that short film, which is, like I said, it's kind of its own short film, 22 minute film. And then we're doing the feature, um, the feature, you know, as you can appreciate, there's a lot of variables in, in timing. Some of it is money and, and, and we're doing a lot of fundraising right now to, to plow right ahead. And I, we're in good shape, but we can always be in better shape for, for funding. So we're working on that. Um, so I would say late 2023, early 2024. And some of that is our decisions around the film festival launch and what festivals we get into and things like that. I don't, I tend not to base everything on film festivals. I actually wrote a blog for the film collaborative about kind of the hybrid release strategy and how I feel like you need to have a whole release strategy completely separate from what might happen with your film festival launch, because it's just, you can't rely on that. You just have no control. So, so control what you can control around, you know, um, your educational distribution and things like that. So we have a, a plan for rollout that I, that I've learned from my previous films, but I would say it's going to be at least a year. I mean, as you know, just editing just takes a long time to do it right. And we don't want to rush that process. Absolutely. Well, I'll make sure that the uh, the link to your website is in the podcast program notes. Thank you so much, Dan Habib. Talking to us from Concord, New Hampshire, filmmaker Dan Habib. Um, My Disability Roadmap is his latest work, but head to his website, website check out all his other films. Uh, Dan, again, thanks for your time. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you and uh, give our best to James Rutenbeck. I will. Thanks a lot, Michael. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Appreciate it. 